Welcome back to our study of the Psalms. We are in Psalm 5 today, and I invite you to look at that with me if you're able to, and uh, if not, just listen along. And what we're going to talk about as we look at Psalm 5 is this. In the Bible, there's often a clear contrast made between the righteous and the wicked. And that doesn't bother us too much when we look at a psalm like Psalm 1, for example, that's describing the righteous and the wicked and their different, uh, you know, descriptions, their different fates and whatnot. Uh, psalm 1 says, you know, blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked and so on, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. It talks about how the wicked will not stand in the congregation of the righteous. In a psalm like that, as we read it, we know that we are to aspire to be like the righteous man, the blessed man, and we are to avoid being like the wicked. But what do we do when we come across a psalm where the psalm itself is saying, uh, you know, whoever's writing it is saying, I am righteous and they are wicked. And I want you to hope that you will bless me and get rid of them. How do we read a psalm like that? Because, of course, the psalms uh, are meant for us to pray them, and they're meant for us to sing them, and uh, they're meant for us to not only learn from them, but to also uh, take them upon our own lips. So when we start to read a psalm like that, then we are going to wonder, am I the righteous in this psalm? Is it okay for me to, to talk like I am righteous? Uh, is it okay for me to pray these kinds of things? about the wicked. What do we do with a psalm like that? So that's what we're going to be talking about as we look through Psalm 5. First, let's just work our way through the psalm quickly, get an overview of what it's talking about, and then we'll look at how it describes uh, the righteous versus how it describes the wicked and see, you know, where do we fit in all of that? And then we'll uh, close by connecting it, uh, connecting the psalm to Jesus. So let's work through the psalm quickly. Uh, it says uh, that this is a psalm to the choir master for the flutes, a psalm of David. So it's a, a psalm that we know for sure is written by David. And it begins this way. Give ear to my words, O Lord. Consider my groaning. Give attention to the sound of my cry, my King and my God. For to you do I pray. O Lord, in the morning you hear my voice. In the morning I prepare a sacrifice for you and watch. Those first three verses are simply... David saying to God, Lord, I'm asking you to hear me. I want you to, to listen to my prayer, to my request. Right? Then verse 4, he says, For you are not a God who delights in wickedness. Evil may not dwell with you. The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all evildoers. You destroy those who speak lies. The Lord abhors the bloodthirsty and deceitful man. So in that next section then, David says that God cannot, uh, does not allow evil to dwell with him, right? Evil cannot dwell with God. God hates wickedness. He even said uh, that he hates all evildoers. Now that, of course, uh, doesn't mean that God hates them and doesn't love them, because the Bible also says that God so loved the world that he gave his only son. So does God hate sinners in some sense? Yes, the Bible is very clear on that. Does he also love sinners in a real and true sense? Absolutely, he does. That's why he sent Jesus. So evil can't dwell with God. 
And then he says, uh, verse 7 and 8, he says, But I, through the abundance of your steadfast love, will enter your house. I will bow down towards your holy temple in the fear of you. Lead me, O Lord, in your righteousness because of my enemies. Make your way straight before me. So David says, evil can't dwell with you, but I can and I will. I'm going to be in your house. I'm going to uh, bow down in your temple. Right? So uh, David says, I I'm going to dwell with you. And then verse 9 and 10 says, for there is no truth in their mouth. Talking about the evil again, the wicked, his enemies. There is no truth in their mouth. Their inmost self is destruction. Their throat is an open grave. They flatter with their tongue. Make them bear their guilt, O God. Let them fall by their own counsels. Because of the abundance of their transgressions, cast them out, for they have rebelled against you. So now David is asking God to cast out the rebellious. He says, even in verse 10, make them bear their guilt, which is essentially the opposite of asking God to forgive them. Right? Make them bear their guilt. Uh, we'll come back to that because that's a pretty heavy statement. Is that something we can say? Is that something we can pray? How does that fit with what Jesus says right, about um, himself from the cross, right, saying, Father, forgive them. for They know not what they do. Um, how do we think about that? We'll come back to that. Right? And then finally, verse 11, verses 11 and 12, he says, But let all who take refuge in you rejoice. Let them ever sing for joy and spread your protection over them, that those who love your name may exult in you. For you bless the righteous, O Lord. You cover him with favor as with a shield. Okay, so clearly David is identifying himself as one who is righteous. And his, he's identifying his enemies as the wicked. And he's asking God to cast out the wicked, make them bear their guilt. And he's asking for protection uh, for those like himself who are among the righteous. So where do we fit in all that? Let's look first at how does David talk about the righteous versus how does he talk about the wicked? Well, here's how he uh, presents himself and talks about uh, the righteous. He presents himself as righteous and talks about those who are righteous uh, this way. This is what we see. First of all, the righteous call out to God. That's what David's doing in verses one to three. The righteous are humble and speak the truth. We know that because in verses 4 and 6, he talks about uh, the wicked being boastful and uh, deceitful or telling lies. Third, we know that the righteous fear God and desire to walk in his ways. We see that in verses 7 and 8. David talks about uh, bowing down in the temple and fearing the Lord in, in verse 7. And in verse 8, he asks God to lead him. Right? Lead me he says, in your righteousness. So that's what the righteous desire. They want to walk in God's way. Uh, fourth, the righteous are not rebels against God. They're not living in rebellion against the Lord. Verse 9 and 10 describes the wicked that way. They are rebels living in rebellion against the Lord. And then finally, the righteous are those who take refuge in the Lord and who love the Lord's name. Right, verses 11 and 12. That's what the righteous are like. Notice he's not claiming to be sinless. He's not claiming to be perfect. He's not saying he does everything right. Instead, he's one who calls upon the Lord, trusts in the Lord, 
walks humbly before the Lord, desires to walk in the ways of the Lord, who loves the Lord, fears the Lord, seeks refuge in the Lord. That's who the righteous are. Uh, so you, you might hear that and think, okay, I, I feel pretty good about that. If we're not pretending like we're perfect or anything, but we just are trusting in God, if that's who the righteous are, um, that, that looks pretty good. But what does he say about the wicked? Well, he says about the wicked in verse 5 that they're proud. He says about the wicked in verse 6 and verse 9 that they lie, they're deceivers. He says about the wicked in verse 9 that they flatter people. So you flatter someone, right, to get what you want. Tell them what they want to hear so they'll do what you want them to do. Uh, and in verse 10, they are rebels against God. So when we look at that, we might think, well, there are certainly times where I'm proud. Um, there have been times where I don't tell the truth. There are occasions where I have uh, flattered someone to get my way. Uh, there have been periods of my life, maybe even as a believer, where I've, in a, in a season or circumstance or something, been rebellious against the Lord. So, I don't know. Where, where do I fit in this psalm, you may be thinking? Well, we can even uh, put a finer point on this, on the, the problem and the, the discomfort we might feel in this psalm, uh, if we notice something about verse uh, 9 of Psalm 5. The second half of the verse says, Their throat is an open grave. They flatter with their tongue. Now, that's, that's a, um, a very vivid image, right? Their throat is an open grave. It's disturbing. Um, it's uh, disgusting in a way. It's awful, as it's supposed to be. It may also ring some bells for you because Paul quotes that verse in Romans chapter 3. And what Paul is doing in Romans chapter 3 is he's saying that all people, Jews and Gentiles, are under sin. That's what he says in verse 9. right? Uh, we have already charged, he says, that all both Jews and Greeks are under sin, as it is written. And then he begins to quote the Old Testament. None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good. Not even one. Uh, that's probably familiar to you, right? You know those words. You know later he's going to say that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So we know that we're all sinners. But notice what he says next. He quotes next from Psalm 5 in Romans chapter 3, verse 13, uh, I believe it is. He says, their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. What is that? That's He's quoting what David says about the wicked in Psalm 5 and saying, this is true of everyone, Jews and Greeks, right? Jews and Gentiles. So that means all of us fall under the description, at least at some point, of the wicked in Psalm 5. Paul takes what David says about the wicked in Psalm 5 and says, this is true of all people, Jews and Gentiles. So what do we do with that? Paul says that we are in the category of the wicked. Here's the good news. There is a solution to this problem. And the solution is this, that those who are the wicked don't have to be the wicked forever. 
In other words, we could put it like this. The categories of righteous and wicked are permanent, but the inhabitants of those categories don't have to be. In other words, what's righteous and what's wicked, that's not going to change. The fact that there are righteous and wicked, that's not going to change. But those who are in the category of the wicked can change. They can be moved from the category of the wicked to the category of the righteous. That's what the whole Bible is about. That's what the gospel is about. That those who are sinners, that those who are rebels against God, those who made themselves God's enemies, can become God's friends, can be reconciled to God, can have their sins forgiven, can be made new creations. How? In Christ, through his death and resurrection. Jesus, the perfect righteous one, came and laid down his life for the unrighteous so that we could be counted righteous, so that we could be saved, so that we could be new. Here's how Paul puts it in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. He says, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers, will inherit the kingdom of God. That sounds a lot like Psalm 5, in the sense that there's a category of people who are wicked, and they are in trouble. Full stop. But, he does go on. But, he says, or excuse me, he says, and such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, and by the Spirit of our God. You were the unrighteous who won't inherit the kingdom, but you're not those people anymore because you have been washed, you have been made clean, you have been made holy, you have been set apart, you have been counted righteous. You are in Christ now. Here's the thing, men. We might fit the description of the wicked in Psalm 5 at some point in our life. No doubt, at some point, we have, but we don't have to stay there. That doesn't have to be who we are anymore. Because again, remember, David doesn't say that the righteous are those who have never sinned. It's not as though the righteous are good people and the wicked are bad people and God likes the good people and doesn't like the bad people. We are all sinners, but God has saved. God has redeemed. God has made new. God has uh, called us out of darkness into the light. And so now, in his Son, in Christ, we are new. We are people who have humbled ourselves and confessed our sin to the Lord. We've been convicted and we've repented. We've, we've called out to God. We fear him. We want to walk with him. We are not perfect, but we do. We have uh, laid down our rebellion against God and have turned toward him. So how does this, how does all this relate to Jesus? Well, of course, Jesus is the only one who can take us from the camp of the wicked to the camp of the righteous. That's not even something we initiate, right? The Bible says that God first loved us. So God, and God seeks us out, right? So um, Jesus is the one who can take us from being among the wicked to being among the righteous. But how would Jesus handle this psalm? How would Jesus pray this psalm? Well, Jesus can pray Psalm 5 uh, as David did, as a righteous man with enemies. Now, of course, Jesus is 
far more righteous than David. David, Jesus is actually sinless, right? He's actually perfectly righteous on his own. Uh, and he had enemies like David did. But would Jesus pray verse 10, right, where it says, make them bear their guilt? After all, that sounds like the exact opposite of what Jesus said on the cross when he said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Would Jesus ask God to make the sins of the wicked count against them? What do we do with that? Well, I, it's right for us to feel the tension of that. But I, I do think that we can answer it. And I do think we can answer it with a yes. And the reason why is because I think that the question here is not if Jesus could pray this verse, but when would he pray this verse? Can we imagine Jesus praying that verse from the cross? No, absolutely not. Because what we do know he prayed from the cross is, Father, forgive them. But what about when he returns and is seated on his throne to judge with righteousness and equity? Can we then envision Jesus saying, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do? No. Not of those who have persisted in their rebellion and refused to repent and refused to bow their knee to King Jesus. At that point, he won't be asking the Father to forgive them. He will be pronouncing just judgment against them, which is what this psalm is speaking about. So it's not a matter of if, but when. Uh, would Jesus pray this from the cross? No. But would he pray it on the last day at the seat of judgment? I think it would. I think it would be fitting there. Uh, in fact, if we look at what Jesus says in the book of Revelation, for example, uh, we know that though he died for sinners, he also uh, warns sinners of coming judgment and will bring judgment to those who refuse to repent in the end. So what does that mean for us? Right? How, how, do, we, how do we pull all that together? Well, I think our desire should be like Jesus's desire. We should desire people to be forgiven, for them to be saved. And that's why he came. That's what he prayed for. That's what he died for. That's what he rose for. Our first desire should be for the wicked to repent and be saved. After all, that was us at one point. But also, we should not be embarrassed about the fact that if people refuse that salvation, if they won't repent, if they persist in their rebellion, their wickedness, their immorality, their sin, then judgment is coming for them. And that's the Bible is very clear about that. And we don't need to be embarrassed or ashamed by that. We should pray first for their forgiveness, right, for their salvation. But there's no reason why we can't also say with David, essentially, if they don't repent, Put an end to it, or um, we, we want wickedness to cease. We prefer it to cease by people being saved and turning to Jesus and repenting of their sin. But if they won't repent, they will get their just reward, just judgment. So those are heavy words, right? Well, let's go back to the good news. Though we were sinners, Christ died for us. We don't have to bear the weight of our guilt because Jesus bore it in our place. If we turn to him, if we trust in him, if we confess him as Savior and Lord, if we 
bow our knee to him, then we have forgiveness and life because of him, the only truly righteous one of us.